You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Luis Alberto Rodriguez is the New York native that graduated from not one but two legendary institutions, including the famed LaGuardia High School and none other than Juilliard. Having spent 15 years performing around the world as a professional dancer before turning to photography, his background is apparent in the incredible imagery that he's known for in the worlds of fashion and art photography today. In this episode, we're gifted with an amazing story made up of humble beginnings and dreams that come true. We also get to hear about the benefits of having nothing to fall back on with imagination being our greatest tool. Hi, this is Luis Alberto Rodriguez, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Luis Alberto Rodriguez, New York City, born and raised. You've been living in Europe for the past 20 years, so let's start with what led to the jump across the pond. Well, I've been a dancer most of my life. That was my identity. I went to Juilliard. I was majoring in dance, and my goal was to be in Europe because at that time, that's really where dance for me was happening and what I was interested in doing. Mm -hmm. When I was at Juilliard, I would watch performances from a lot of the European companies and I just felt more identified with what I was seeing there. And so when I was at Juilliard, a director came from Germany and basically hired me. So I got a contract in a company in Germany for a year. And then after that, I was fired multiple times. (laughs) My first few years in Europe were really, really bumpy. And I was fired for reasons that I mean, it was just a mess, but I was fired and I was just making my way around, freelancing, joining companies, and I moved to eight different countries. And then I moved to Sweden where I spent a good amount of time before I moved to Berlin. And I've been in Berlin now for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And then during that time, I really did everything. I performed all over the world. I did terrible performances. I did amazing performances. It's been a journey. It sounds like it. Well, let's actually go back to the root of dance. You went to not only Juilliard, but you had also gone to the famous LaGuardia High School. At what point in your life did you decide that was a love? Um, I was always dancing. It was something that was very natural for me. And my family's from the Caribbean Dominican Republic. And so dance was always very present and music. Uh So that felt very natural to me. But I think I have a kind of a typical story of a young gay boy (laughs) where I'm kind of like the Latino Billy Elliot in a way. (laughs) And so I grew up in New York City and I grew up in the hood and my parents have no money. And I was in these programs that they have for kids to like not get them in trouble, like after school programs. And I'm just kind of like the poster boy for that. It was a safe space for me to be in that environment because it was a place that was very Mm non-judgmental. And when I was young, girl, I just wanted to escape because I was bullied and I just didn't identify with my surroundings necessarily. And so I was just constantly escaping and dance became that. You also touched upon the socioeconomics and such as a child. And something I often contemplate is what types of tools or sort of edges afforded to those who had to struggle as opposed to those who perhaps grew up in a more frictionless or, for lack of a better term, privileged environment. Do you have any takeaways that you attribute to the way you grew up that are now valuable to you today? I think I had nothing to fall back on. My family, my parents have almost no education from school. Mm -hmm. My parents have a 28 year difference and they've been in the United States, in New York City, in a very common immigrant story of just survival. And so I really had no foundation of finances to fall back on. And so my biggest tool was my imagination and always dreaming to be something that I just wasn't or that I didn't feel like I was. 
And I think that perseverance and being creative with having not much at your disposal <laughs> has been a tool that I think has been very handy for me because I'm very grateful for the love and the encouragement that I received as a young child. Mm -hmm. But my parents don't even really speak English. So my parents are not stage parents. I kind of did everything by myself. And I think because my parents didn't understand what I was doing, I definitely didn't involve them into what I was doing. I think a lot of my teachers were very confused all the time because my parents were never around. And I was 11 years old taking the train by myself up and down New York City. And I was a theater kid and my parents didn't really know what was happening, but they trusted me to do the right thing. I was very lucky in New York City because I surrounded myself with people who were really striving for something greater than themselves and an incredible group of teachers and mentors that really took me under their wing. There was this kind of unspoken thing of like, where are your parents? Mm -hmm. And I think that because my parents didn't speak English, because my father was working in a restaurant washing dishes, my mother was working in factories in the garment district, I was always very embarrassed of what they were doing. And I wasn't proud of that when I was a child. And so it's almost like I had this secret life of performance. And I just did my own thing and kept that away from my parents and kept my friends from my parents because a lot of my friends were in New York City out and about. And, you know, some of them were trans. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were very flamboyant. And I was afraid that my parents would think that that was what I would become mm. at that time in my life. So it's an interesting sort of journey, <laughs> my early beginning. Were you ever in the ballroom scene at that time? No, but a lot of my friends were. Like I was in the periphery of it, but I was never involved because it was extremely intimidating. I was extremely, extremely, extremely shy. For me, it was just like, oh my God, what, like, are, these, what are these people doing? You know, I had friends <laughs> who were young teens who were taking hormones. For me, even the word gay was like a crime at that time, you know? At what point did you feel like you came to peace with that? Or was that something that came many years later? Many years later, I was so focused on dance. And I think dance for me was my refuge. Like my colleagues were always trying to figure me out, but I didn't come out until my mid-20s. Oh, wow. That's pretty epic considering that you not only existed in a professional dance space, but you also grew up in New York. Why did you stay in the closet for so long? I think I was just very repressed. And it's really crazy what the mind can do. There was a very, very strong will and it was like a lot of dissonance. Of course. I always felt also that I was being boxed in. People mm -hmm. wanted to figure me out all the time and I was internally really resisting that. And then I moved to Europe and I felt there was a bit more room and fluidity mm -hmm. for different aspects of sexuality. And at that time in my life, I identified more with that and felt more comfortable with that. It makes sense. Having been a professional dancer for 14 years and traveling the world with that, what was the catalyst for your jump into photography? I actually, <laughs> it's, a, it's a few things, you know, when I, first of all, when I was a late teen, I was always getting stopped by agencies in New York to do modeling things, mm -hmm. but it was a very different time. It was a time where there was not a lot of diversity in the modeling world. So I would always go to these castings, but I never got the gig. Mm -hmm. And so I would see these guys who were at the casting and then I would see them later on in the magazines. So I was always fascinated with portfolios at that time because there was like a mystery to me, like that all these guys were getting these jobs and then I would see them later on in these magazines. But later on, more than that, one of my biggest inspirations is a choreographer, a director named William Forsyth. 
And the way he works with bodies was extremely fascinating to me. And when I moved to Europe, the productions and the posters that they would have for the company, first of all, I wanted to be in the company and I wanted to be in the poster, but the images, the bodies were twisted and crooked and blurry and upside down. And it had broken all the rules that I had learned when I was in New York. And I was really fascinated with that aspect of it. And so I remember watching performances and always having this game that I would play with myself where I would blink every time I would see a picture, Mm -hmm. a potential photo. And then when I was traveling with different companies around Europe, we would go on tour a lot. And during these tours, I never was interested in like the churches or like the center square. I would just sit around on the streets and take pictures of people of what they were wearing. A lot of times older people, I found that they had so much character Mm -hmm. and I had a Tumblr and I would just post them just because like, oh, I went to China, look at the picture of this person that I met. I was so identified as a dancer Mm -hmm. that I never really had this idea or interest in being a photographer. Like dance really, really, really shaped me. It's not a logical profession. It's not something that you choose necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I didn't really see a possibility of doing something else. I know some of my other dance colleagues did, but that was not my story. Anyway, so with all these pictures that I was posting on Tumblr, I started getting people commenting on my photos. Oh, you're very talented. You should continue. But it's like somebody telling you, oh, go follow your dreams. Like, what the hell do you do with that? You know? <laughs> and then in 2015-ish, I have a friend, Beat Bolliger, who's a stylist. Mm-hmm. And I was always hanging out with him. And I asked him one day, can I be your assistant as a stylist? I didn't even really know what that meant. But I would go shopping with him and everything felt so fab. And I was like... This could be fun. Mm -hmm. And he was like, listen, I don't think you want to be my assistant. I think you should really consider taking your photography more serious. And by that point, I was living in Berlin. And through him, I met a group of friends here who were older than me and became mentors. One of them being this man who unfortunately passed away, Mac Folks. And he was an encyclopedia of culture. And when I was in Berlin, I was dancing and I was doing different projects. And I started really, really being really, really passionate about photography because after Bayat told me that I should consider it, I started looking at photo books. When I saw those photo books, I was like, wait a minute, I identified myself in these pictures because these are the pictures of the old ladies that I'm taking when I'm on tour. Like the Avedon American West, for example, it was life-changing for me just because I was in such a dance bubble before that and I had never paid attention to these masters who devoted their lives to doing this work. So that really turned on the light for me. So. In terms of technical skill, was that just something that you learned over time by trial and error? Yeah. (laughs) I really knew nothing. Like, I didn't know anything. I would write people to start assisting. Nobody would reply to me. I was thinking of applying to schools and I would go to the end of the year exhibitions and I was not really feeling it. I was really determined to start assisting someone. But again, nobody would reply. And I just started to get small jobs and I would watch YouTube sometimes. Like, I didn't know what aperture was. I didn't know what shutter speed was. I didn't know anything. I won a camera on eBay, (laughs) like a film camera. And I just went flat broke, just buying film, trying to do like trial and error. And through that, I started to understand like what it was that I was doing technically. I also have to say, I was never looking at the technical aspect. I was always focused on the bodies, Mm -hmm. the body and how I can direct the body to create an emotional response for myself through the portraiture, through how I would tell them to use their physicality. But then the mentors that I had met, they started to be more critical and like, you should really be focusing on the lights and you should be focusing on how the light can shape what you're doing. Uh And then it was kind of like, oh, wait a minute. 
<laughs> I don't even care what time of day it is. I'm just trying to get <laughs> I'm just out here just wilding out with no technical skills. I was going to ask you if you thought being, you know, the self-taught aspect is obviously a significant pillar in what informs your work. Do you feel as though that is something that we can see in your references or the work itself, the result of being self-taught? I mean, it's hard because it's my own work. So I guess it's hard for me to see what people see. Mm -hmm. But I think what I can see is my identity and my history of bodies, because that's really what informs my work. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that the self-taught aspect is something that you necessarily see, mm -hmm. but I don't have these rules, I guess, that are taught in school. I just work with whatever I feel works for me. Mm -hmm. Well, also a lot of photographers today work with movement directors, obviously wanting to ensure that there's dynamism in their images or perhaps to compensate for a lack of experience in the case they want to shoot someone who's newer as a talent, but maybe not necessarily able to create those shapes and styles on their own. But you, given the background you have in dance, obviously don't require that type of support. And I remember there was an editor who actually suggested you for a cover story saying that you had such a gift to engage the talent on set and really bring them out of their shell and create this magic. How would you describe your relationship to talent or whichever subject that you're shooting? For me, it's a little bit psychological. I like to work with whoever is in front of me and through their body, I can see where they're locked. I can see by the way they walk, where they have their tension. It's like, I feel like my eyes become like detectives. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I try to work with what they have to make people feel comfortable because we're all physical people. I try to make the person feel comfortable by not trying to imagine them being something that they're not. You literally uh -huh. have to work with the material in front of you. At this point in my life, I think what has helped me is been my dance training. I really have an incredible appreciation for dance, even more than when I was dancing and for dancers, because the information that you gain from this is something that is priceless. It really uh -huh. is priceless. And I see, even when I'm so nervous to be on a set with someone, which I am most of the time, I see how all the tools that I've gained through all of those years, uh -huh. it's really in my back pocket. And I start to trust that more because even when I'm lost, I understand that human connection is something that is always there. And I can lean on my history to direct what I need at that moment. It makes perfect sense. And you touch upon one of my favorite things when you mention being nervous, even to this day where you've achieved a great deal of success. And that's the sort of notion of imposter syndrome that everyone has. And one of the things that's organically come from this show is tapping into the humanity of the accomplished or the elite. And I think a lot of the audience aren't just industry members, but those that aspire to somehow break into this space and maybe think in their minds that they're different from you and not necessarily capable of achieving the same accolades. So first off, did you feel more imposter syndrome as a result of coming up on your own, teaching yourself along the way, or was that not necessarily something that exacerbated it? Oh, are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> I still feel like such a phony sometimes, you know, I've been thrown into these spaces and have had such incredible opportunities so far. And half the time I'm like, how the hell did I get here? because I never dreamed to be a photographer. I never followed fashion like that. I've always been interested in clothes, I guess, but I've never really followed fashion. I never really had a dream of being a fashion photographer. I've always been a little bit like random, you know, a little bit Phoebe from Friends <laughs> and like the things that always have inspired me. I remember when I was a dancer, I did a series of photos of ankles. It's just really, really random. And so when I've been getting this opportunity to be more in fashion, to be working in a fashion space, 
it's been an incredible platform for me because it's kind of like playtime, mm -hmm. but it's just so stressful. You know, fashion people take themselves so serious as they should, you know, I just feel like all of a sudden I am in the front of the room and people are asking me questions and I'm just like, I don't know what the hell do you, you know, what do you, <laughs> what do you think? I just really try to work with people where I want to give them the space to really bring the best out of them. I think nobody's an island. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're here to work together. I think there's this fallacy that it's like, I am the director, but I'm like, you can't make these pictures without others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have to be well equipped with a group of people that you really trust. Of course. Well, I think that's why we see these kind of consistent mafias throughout the industry. People find their groove and they stay within those trusted partnerships and collaborations. Human connection is such a fundamental part of general well-being, and a lot of your images feature people intertwined, and obviously you have a fascination with shapes or movement and all the other things that are the result of your background with dance, but what else are you looking to convey with those parts of your work, or are you not really cerebral about the process? I don't know if I'm really cerebral. I'm really interested in intimacy, uh -huh. and I think that it's really at the root of my work. Mm -hmm. It's not something that is intentional, but it's something that I'm constantly gravitating towards. I feel like it's probably a reflection of inner desires in myself. Mm -hmm. I don't have a message that I'm like, I need you guys to read my work like this. I wanna create work that has enough space for people to read it as they wish. And I think that with everybody's experience, they will read a specific photo in a different way. And I think that's incredible. Well, also even the conversation around male affection being normalized and regardless of sexual orientation, just as a general kind of social construct or the way we've been programmed, even yourself having come out so late, you had that incredible project, People of the Mud, that you had shot in Ireland. And obviously that was something that you encountered there. So what kind of barriers or breakthroughs did you experience during the shooting of that project? It was an incredible experience for me. My first time getting a residency, I was living on a farm for almost two months and I really had no idea what to expect. It was a very, very in a way, homogenous community of white people, you know, and as a person of color, I was very nervous mm -hmm. as to what I would encounter or how they would receive me. And I think that a lot of people forget within photography, for example, there's a little bit of a sidetrack, but like in street photography, as a person of color, I can't just be in the middle of the street and start taking pictures of people. It's not something that I can just get away with. You know, in fact, when I was in Ireland, when I first got there, I was in the middle of the town square with a big old camera. The cops came at one point. And so it's just something that I just want to put in there because I find it's really important for this particular conversation. But when I was in Ireland, I had the subject to work with, which was cultural heritage. I was introduced by a friend, Raphael. She introduced me to Grace Carroll, who's a production person. And she introduced me to her brother, Seamus, who was one of the main players in a hurling team. And I told her that my interest originally was community and intimacy and family. My original idea was to shoot an entire family kind of wrestling, <laughs> like a huge, large format photo of an entire family wrestling, because I wanted to show this closeness between family members that it's so close that it's almost suffocating. And she was like, that sounds wonderful, but you're never going to get Irish people to do that. But she was like, my brother's on a team. And sometimes on these teams, you have multiple family members on the same team. And through the players that I met, I met some of their friends, their girlfriends. And I was working with farmers. I worked with Irish traditional dance. It was an incredible, incredible, really 
it really marked me being there because of how well I was received by how warm the people were with me, by the relationships that I formed while I was there. And to work with a community, to have a process that was a little bit ongoing through the period that I was there. It was not just I shoot and I leave. I was building relationships, even if it was for a short period with these people. I was shooting in their backyards. I was meeting their parents. It was just an incredible and warming experience that I'm very proud of and I'm very humbled by. It's a project that is extremely, extremely special for me because at the end of the day, like this kid from New York City shows up in Ireland and it's just like taking pictures of this completely different culture. And that could just be all kinds of wrong in so many ways, but they were just incredible. So I'm very happy to have had that. Well, I would assume there's a level of trust that one must build in order to get strangers to make those types of pictures for you. And again, returning to the concept of closeness or sculpture with people, that intimacy that you were trying to convey, having done it with such a hyper-masculine group of people, were there any moments where you felt like you connected with them and they didn't really understand what was going on, but they had a did you that trust to just cooperate and execute accordingly? I think quickly, I just also have to say that one of the things that I learned was that you're not going to get a photo without getting out of your comfort zone. Of course. For me to go there and to introduce my project to a group of strangers in a locker room after a game, mm-hmm. or you could hear a pin drop on the floor and I'm explaining <laughs> to them that I want to take pictures of them. I was literally shaking. But what I was saying, what you just asked now, I think that I was using the material that they use. I would watch the game and I would use the material that they were using on the fields and use that as the material that, that I would use for the photo. So everything that I was doing was in a way familiar to them and mm. I would redirect it. And so basically I would watch the game is called Hurling and it's basically the fastest game on grass. But after watching their game, I would go home and watch it on YouTube in slow motion. And I would see that in a matter of seconds, there's all these moments of like pushing and pulling and hugging and scratching and like throwing each other. And I don't think that they realize how intimate they're being. And that was my actual interest. But when I would direct them, I think also the testosterone of like, let's do it. You know, when I would give them like a challenge in a way, they were up for it, even though sometimes they were like, what the hell is this? These players have been on the same team. They grew up together. So they're very, very close with each other. So there's a lot of trust already within them. And I was basically trying to document that. It certainly worked. And your work has been celebrated in both the fashion and art sectors. And this book is a perfect example of that. I was curious as to whether or not that was an intentional pursuit for you in terms of wanting to achieve recognition in both of those sectors or what came first? I never really followed or chase fashion. I started to get fashion opportunities because in 2017, I was a finalist at the Year Festival in France. Mm-hmm. And Tim Walker was the head of the jury there and I became one of the winners. And that really was an incredible experience for me. But I never really aimed to be a fashion photographer. My interest again was always bodies, <laughs> bodies and portraits. And so I never really had any goal. To be really honest, it's been very naive for my part. I was dancing my whole life and then I had this interest that was photography that I found out later was an interest. I always just followed my intuition and my gut. And there was a point where I stopped taking dance work and I was in Berlin and I was lost, like absolutely lost. But I knew that photography was giving me so much energy. And it was something that once I realized how much I had to learn, I just became absolutely for lack of a better word, obsessed with it. I was just dreaming photography. It was never this thing that I'm like, I'm going to be a fashion photographer, you know, or working in the arts field. I grew up in the theater. And so that's been my lens. So everything that has come has been as a result of my work through the work, but never through me having this big aim. 
I had a conversation with another dancer one day about the idea of what's contemporary. And his response was that when he hears the word contemporary, he thinks of a particular genre and dance. So perhaps you'll have the same response. But obviously, we have to ask you the question. What, in your opinion, is contemporary today? I think owning your history. I think owning your history and really digging deep and pulling from it and being proud of where you come from, I think is the key to any kind of success. Because wherever you go, there you are. You can try to escape and escape and escape like I did for so many years, but you find yourself where you need to be. And I also think your integrity is everything. And in terms of what's contemporary, I think the way you spend your time and how you're choosing to slow down, hopefully, is contemporary. I think taking a pause to really be reflective of what it is that you're doing and trying to stop the urge and the itch to go, 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 go. I also think that's contemporary. Beautifully said and wildly applicable. Thank you again for taking the time today. I thoroughly enjoyed our little chat and all of your vivacious energy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 